thank you and welcome to Ron Smith. Uh, everyone knows, I think, uh, probably knows of the part Ron played with the um, his time at the AIS, the AIS and the development of the Golden Generation. But there's a little bit more to Ron and we thought we might start this. Ron giving us a bit of background, how he got into coaching and the roles that he's played here in Australia. Over to you, Smudger. Okay. All right, guys, thanks for that. Um, I, uh, I actually kind of fell into coaching by accident. I, I, my early days uh, as a player, I was unfortunate not to have met a coach, as I now know what a coach can be. Um, when I went to college to become a phys ed teacher, after not making full-time professional football a living, I met a coach for the first time who inspired me enormously by the name of Tommy Tranter, who was um, a, a staff coach with the FA. And he was the one who really uh, opened my mind up about football and um, understanding that there was a lot more to going out and playing rather than just putting your boots and shirt on. So that, was, that, that got me inspired. And <clears throat> while I was at college, I started to... Uh, get as much information as I could, not only from the staff, but from other coaching associations like the London Coaches and Surrey Coaches Association who used to have one-day seminars every month. And I did that for several years uh, because I, I just wanted to get more and more information, hopefully trying to help me as a player, but it was a little bit too late for me in those days. Uh, I, I finished up doing my full badge when I was 24. And shortly before I came to Australia, and that opened some doorways. I, I played for a year in uh, Victoria, but then the registration system put me out of the game. I won't go into a long-winded detail about that, but I'd also had two years of knee surgeries and whatever. And so I kind of figured the next best thing to play in football full-time was to be coaching full-time. And I, I took an opportunity to become the coaching director in Victoria. Uh, as a full-time job, and I've been very fortunate in that I've I've managed to stay working in football in a full-time capacity ever since, which is uh, a long time now. And in that in that period of time, I've changed an awful lot in terms of adapting to technology, um, the role of coaching, and so on. So I've I've spent time. I've always been involved in coach education until recently, um, but that was where I started. I coached the state youth teams, the state team, as most coaching directors did back in the in the seventies and eighties. I I was involved also. Um, seems crazy now, but as part of that, when Jimmy Shoulder was a national coach, I was his assistant for twenty six matches, including World Cup qualifying games over about a fifteen month period, leading into the seventy eight World Cup. In uh, then I I left and I spent a year coaching in Iceland. Uh, that led to a return to Australia. I won't go into all the reasons why these things happened, but it's a little bit of a tracking of where I've been and what I've done. I came back to Queensland as the director of coaching in 1980 and 81, and there again I coached the state team, the youth team, and the under 16s, as well as doing obviously the coach education work. I then moved to the AIS as assistant coach in January 82 and I was there for four years working under Jimmy 
And then I took over as head coach in 86, between that time and 86 and 96. Uh, that's when, obviously, uh, not long after that, you joined me on the staff for three years, um, uh, which was a great time. And uh, during that time also, we had both of us. Uh, you you were working with Frank Carrick at one stage as an assistant national coach. And I was involved uh, over a period of time in an advisory assistant capacity with not only the, the youth from time to time, but also with the Ollie Roos under Eddie Thompson. After the AIS, I, I went into uh, senior football, if you like, in, uh, in Malaysia. I was lured out of the institute and I spent four years working in club football in Malaysia. Uh, I was very fortunate in um, 96 to have won the first full pro league in Malaysia. And uh, I think I was on record as, I think I'm the first Australian coach to ever win a league title uh, in Asia in a professional league which I'm quite proud of. I was then seconded or requested. Uh, the royal family um, like to in, get what they, what they would like to see happen. And so I didn't have much choice, but I, I then was seconded to the Football Association and I spent three years there in, in setting up a programme very similar to the AIS I was involved in, uh, I was responsible for coach education and uh, player development where we had 14 academies throughout Malaysia plus a full-time residential program in Kuala Lumpur. That program still exists, as do the academies. And the, I spent three years working to train people to take over. And after I left in 2002, the people that I trained were in, in charge for nearly eight years. So I was, I was pleased to have done that and um, I still have good relationships with a number of people over in Malaysia. I, I came back to Australia then and <clears throat> I started to do some work with Frank Freeman, who was a national coach. By this time, I got involved in uh, doing some research and using uh, sports code software, uh, not initially for what it was intended. I was using it to make coaching resources because I was responsible for running the A, B and uh, C licence. Not that I did all of that because I had three full-time assistants, um, but it got me into the research area and I have continued with that uh, still to this day. I, I started a PhD at the University of Canberra in 2011 and I finished that in 2015, but I still do lots of work. Uh, because it's hard not to when you start uh, following trends in football. And my particular interest was in goal-scoring patterns. Um, but that's only a small part of my overall interest, obviously, in the game, being a coach. I, I came back to work as the technical manager for FFA from 2004 to six, And that was largely about, although I was responsible for elite player development, it was really essentially about trying to get the help Frank Perino and qualifying for the World Cup. And that was an exciting two-year period. And obviously, um, you know, uh, Frank was replaced by Gus Hiddink in uh, 2005. But uh, the process of qualifying was a major part of it all. And uh, I continued then to be doing uh, work as a technical analyst for the best part of 10 years with the Socceroos and the Olympic team. 
I had a stint away from the FA. I left there and went to Coach Perth Glory to take when the FA owned the licence. Uh, I was there for nearly two seasons. I got sacked halfway through the second year when I mistakenly had seven Oli Roos in my squad who kept disappearing for several weeks at a time and making my life very difficult as a coach. Um, but that was, uh, again, a wonderful experience. But following that, in 2009, I had a, a bit of a health scare. I had a quadruple bypass and died a couple of times. So that put a different perspective on football. As much as I loved it, I, I wasn't prepared to die for it. <laughs> so I've... Um, I've taken a little bit of a backward step since then. I still do plenty, but uh, I've shied away from being a head coach of a program for obvious reasons because of the the stress that goes with it. And um, I've continued to do things with a football consultancy that I started in doing workshops and uh, pretty much uh, things that I find interesting and uh, that capture my imagination. And obviously, part of that is doing. Uh, more and more research into the game, not just about goal scoring patterns, but um, you know how do we actually get the opportunities to score goals? So I've, I've gone more into that pathway in more recent years. And as part of the time that I've had in being able to watch an awful lot of practice, I've I've had the time to seriously look at the effects of not only what I've done over decades in terms of helping players through practice, it's made me question how we practice much more. And so my presentation tonight is a little bit more about the way I've gone towards structuring practice in the last six or seven years, which has been quite different in many respects to what I've done in the previous 25 or so. And um, I often say this, what has really staggered me is that it took me so long to actually see the light. And um, the only excuse I've got for that is that when you're flat out coaching on a full-time basis, you don't get that much time to seriously reflect on what you're doing. So, um, Ronnie, can I ask a a quick question there? I I know everyone's keen to get going into the presentation. The last couple of years, you've, you've actually coached some real young kids, some grassroots football. Um, in Canberra. Has that been a part of helping you to change and reflect on that? Oh, very much so, Gaz. Um, you know, I've I've been involved with professional players or wannabe professional players for the best part of my life. Um, I've been to World Cups, Olympic Games, I've been assistant coach and all that stuff. So going back to grassroots recently has, has been a real eye-opener. And I often used to say to my wife that, if dealing with these kids is, is you know, doing my head in, what is it, how must it affect some of the people that don't have my experience? So that's been a, a very sobering experience and one that I think um, has helped change my thinking a little bit and obviously made me do things to try and help people that are facing the same problems that I faced, um, you know, in uh, community football and MPL. So that's probably a great segue uh, into uh, tonight's presentation. So uh, with no further ado, Dr. Ronald Smudger-Smith. <laughs> okay. All right, Gaz, so here we go. I want to talk about practice, methodology and the elements of practice. 
And I've, I've got a picture here of a description of practices that came from Eric Worthington's book, Teaching Soccer Skill, in, which he published in 1973. And it's one of the best descriptors that I've seen to date. And that's why I like to share it with people and show them because it, it gives you a, a mental picture of going upwards from the ground up. Um, when you start thinking about practices, the benefits that you might get from them, and indeed when you actually make a choice of a practice to um, whenever you're going to be doing some uh, coaching with players. On the left-hand side, we've got the, the very basic level of simplicity to complex the low motivation to the high motivation is a really important one. And on the right-hand side, we've got part of the game to the whole match and from artificial to realistic on, on the, the other uh, spectrum. And these four, these four spectrums influence enormously um, the, the, the environment that you might create and what I think is really important in terms of the transfer of training. Uh, in recent years, I've looked an awful lot at, at practice methodologies and I've changed an, uh, enormously in the last six to seven years. Practices that I've, I've actually done with players at all levels for many, many years. And when I started thinking seriously about how I could improve them, I started then to think about building the elements of the game into the practice. And as a result of that, you start to increase the as you're going up that ladder in the picture that we've got in front of us. So we start to Im, uh, improve the complexity, the motivation. It gets closer to the game and therefore practices become a little bit more realistic. And I want to share my thoughts with everybody because um, I, I think it's it's a, a contribution. I've certainly uh, seen a difference in the response from players in practices. And I want to take you through these. Okay. So at the lowest level, we've got what, what we used to call a related practice, uh, unopposed drills, passing practices would fit into that. We've then got the next level. And whilst this is a, an increase in motivation, it, it, it's often a, a little bit more because it's a game in itself. We've got ball technique practice, which is often referred to these days as positioning games. And then we've got functional and phase practice, which is these days, which is a part of the game. It's often referred to as uh, game training. And then we move into the small-sided game, the coach practice match, and the full competitive match, which is um, training games. And they are, they have all the elements of a game, uh, maybe except the emotional side that you get with playing a competitive match. But in terms of playing the game and uh, the, the requirements uh, for players, they're not that different. And that's why I think small-sided games, which I've circled there, are probably the most um, common way of practising playing football. Um, Steve Holland, who's the assistant coach with the England team, was on Twitter and this, uh, this uh, statement refers to the transfer into the game or the transfer of training. And you can read that statement. I don't have to read it out. Um, and I, th I think this is something that uh, a lot of coaches are, have always got in the back of their mind. 
for me, whenever I'm working with players and I, I organise things in different ways and there's a multitude of ways of, of organising even positioning games or game training type activities, I always say to myself, would this happen in a game? And when I'm looking at something, if I ever say to myself, no, I don't think that would happen or it might happen but not very often, I try and modify things so that the realism comes back into the practice. Because if it's not going to happen in the game, my question is, well, why am I doing it? Or has the organisation of the practice led to a degree of um, artificial behaviour or unrealistic behaviour, should we say? The elements of the game that you need to build in are opposition, direction, the transition from attack to defence or defence to attack, a scoring system and preferably goals. If you build the more of those elements that you have in a practice, the greater the realism is and the higher the motivation. And therefore, we would like to think that you've got the transfer of training. Now, you might say, well, why don't we just play games? Okay, that's a fair fair question. And I would advocate that a large part of training should be about playing the game. Um, in, in my sessions, it, it always um, it plays a major part. And if in doubt or with the lack of equipment and you're dealing with any, any level of players, then I would say play games. And if you want to do any coaching, do coaching in the game. But let, let the, the, the play flow. Um, if you want to break things down into smaller units so that people get more repetition, then again, you can, how can you build in all these elements of the game? Now, there are sort of things I want to share with you in this presentation. Um, Part of uh, influencing behaviour and learning is a little bit of knowledge about some of the factors that affect skill acquisition. Now, this isn't complete, but there are a couple of basics in here that you can relate to with any kind of training practice. As I've said before on that on the chart of Eric uh, Worthington's, the more we get into the game, the higher the motivation. The more divorced we are from playing the game, the lower the motivation unless it's it's particular. You'll find players that are highly motivated may want to do things outside of the game because they want massive doses of repetition to tune feeling. Um, that's a slightly different kettle of fish to having a group of, of learners, if you like, learning to play the game. So all these things have to be taken in the context of what we're talking about, and that is dealing with groups of people who are, you know, playing the game for fun, they want to get better, or we, you, you, you might assume that or uh, think that they want to get better. So you try and organise a different way of practising so they get more repetition. The whole part whole is uh, also what we what is now commonly referred to as the gig method, which is game intervention and game. But it's the same thing. Uh, I was introduced to whole part whole learning when I went to college in 1968. And it's taken on all sorts of names and variations on a theme ever since. But essentially, it's an, an approach of playing the game, break it down into some smaller units um, so that people get more practice and then go and put it back into the game again. The distribution of practice, and I put here including repetition, is important because distribution of practice uh, could relate to how many times a week do you train or practice? Is it? twice or three times at a club but do you 
practice on your own on a daily basis with a friend, etc., etc. So the distribution of practice needs to be taken in the, the bigger picture context and not just in terms of trying to master a particular technique or skill, um, you know, a, as a part of the game. Knowledge of results is something that uh, influences your ability in, in terms of acquiring skill because you get immediate results from trying to achieve a task. For example, if, if I had 10 balls on the edge of the penalty area and I tried to hit the crossbar, um, I know from because I can see what's happening, first of all, how many times I might hit the bar and how many times I've come really close. Um, so that gives me a little bit of information about how well I'm doing. And if I, you know, if I sort of stand there and I hit it three times out of 10 and the other seven were probably within 12 or, you know, 12 inches, 24 inches a foot or two foot above or below the crossbar, I'd feel um, that that was a pretty good indication that technically I'm in control of what I'm doing and I can hit targets. Now, feedback, it might that usually comes from the coach. It could be from a, uh, a friend who's looking at what you're doing and says, look, I think you might try just getting, put your non-kicking foot a little bit further past the ball, for example. You know, if you're, if you're trying to drive a ball with power and the ball keeps going left, right in ball flight, the odds are that you're actually striking the ball, but you're slightly behind it. So as your leg follows through it, it's going to cut in across the ball and putting a left-right spin on it, etc., etc. So that's feedback, okay, as distinct from knowledge of results. And often people get those confused. So when it comes to choosing the practice, I always say to people and myself, why am I doing it? What do I, you know, what do I uh, make a selection for? What does it provide for the player? Is it about having fun or enjoyment? Uh, and that may be the sole objective of having a particular practice. So I might have a game of head tennis because this is a fun game. You get lots of contact and I, I've yet to find players who don't enjoy playing uh, a bit of head tennis or football tennis, whatever you want to call it. Are you selecting a practice for learning something new? That, that, you know, And these are considerations. Don't want to spend too long on it. Is the practice going to involve decision-making about a particular aspect like when and when not to receive the ball? When should I play the ball first time? What are the cues? So, And do I get a lot of repetition in it as opposed to playing a game? And most research has shown that um, when you play a game, you actually don't have that much ball contact. Now, playing a game is great for training a behaviour like positioning where you can see opponents in the ball because you need to be playing in a game where the point of attack is going to change, so your body position keeps changing, the whole set of circumstances keep changing, but you're trying to teach yourself um, how to keep getting in positions where you can see your opponent and the ball, which is fairly clear and easy to understand, and so you need to focus on that to actually train yourself to do it. Maintaining or improving performance, this is another factor. I don't subscribe to the view that every time you go to a, a, a training session, you have to be introducing something new. I'm a firm believer that in getting players to understand practices, they need repetition. They need to understand the rules of the practice. And some um, rules in practices 
uh, take a little bit of time to understand. And if you're at that stage where the players are trying to come to terms with what they've got to do and how they react when they lose the ball, et cetera, et cetera, then my advice will be forget about trying to improve performance. Get the players to understand it, okay? Um, but there are times where you want to just go out and maintain or improve performance. You know what you're doing and you don't need any more information from a coach. You just need the opportunity to go and practice doing what you're trying to achieve. Um, and then, um, so what does it provide for the player in terms of replicating what happens in the game? So again, we come back to this realism in practice and how can you keep getting more and more realism by introducing more and more of the elements of the game into the practice. A couple of years ago, I, I started helping uh, a group of players who were under 13 and it was it was the first time for a long while that I hadn't dealt with people who were what you might call in a professional football environment. And it took me a little bit of getting too used to with the fact that people would be drifting in and out. And the, I never took it out on the kids um, because they were late because I know the kids were dependent on their parents to get them there. So I would have players drifting in sometimes 10 minutes, 15 minutes late for a, a training session. But... Um, what I did when I first took this group, I asked them why they came training. And it was a little bit of an education for me because I'd only ever dealt with um, really highly motivated people. So when I asked the question of the kids, why are you here? Uh, the biggest reason was uh, they, they just want to have fun. So I said, okay, then, um, is there anything else? And I said, a couple said, well, I'd like to make a few new friends. I said, okay, that's fine. Um, is there anything else? And only one kid said, I'd actually like to get better at playing football. So out of the 19 kids that I had, um, who never turned up all at the same time, but there were 19 in the group, only one said he wanted to become a better player. Now, normally you'd make an assumption that that's the reason why they come training. So it taught me a lesson. So all of the practices that I organised, I put goals in because I'd asked the boys, what's your idea of having fun? And they said, scoring goals. I said, okay, then. So um, I just took that, and I, I really didn't try and teach them anything unless it was relevant to scoring a goal, or how could they actually get more opportunities to score goals. So I, I kind of tried to lead them into it by organising practice where they got lots of repetition, we always, we always played games as a whole group, depending on how many were there. Uh, and sometimes the boys said to me, can we play on a full field, even though there were only 12 at training? And I said, well, that's your – I wouldn't recommend it. But they said, no, we'd like to do it. So I convinced them sometimes that we didn't want to do that for very long. But they did it because I was there to facilitate what they wanted and what they determined to be having fun. Like at the start of each session, I said, do you want to just stand and kick balls into the, into the goal? And they said, oh, yeah, we love doing that. I said, okay, then, so how long do you want to do it for before I organise a practice? And they said, at least 10 minutes. So every training session that we came to, even though I'd have little activities for the ones that were drifting in, when everybody was there, we started the practice, a couple of them, and they organised it, a couple would go in goal so that they could save the balls and throw them back out. 
and they take it in turns to go in goal. But they just loved standing there and booting balls into the goal uh, because that was their idea of fun. So anyway, I'm, I'm saying that as a way of uh, making uh, coaches aware that you need to find out why why kids come training. And so then um, while I was uh, dealing with these players and, like I say, I get practices going, and the lads as players were pretty average, I must admit. And so I, I started giving practices where if we were doing something like a five against two where they had to move the ball from one area to another, which I'm going to share with you shortly, and I would make the areas really quite big so that they had more time uh, to try and control the ball and get it uncontrolled before they passed it and weren't under too much pressure from defenders. There was nothing wrong with the boys in terms of understanding the practices. They understood those things and what the targets were, but it was actually doing it. It was the ball manipulation and passing and receiving. Uh, that, that was the issue they had. Um, but so I typically I'd get a practice going and then somebody would drift in. Um, and it drove me crazy for a while. And so I, I came up with um, a way of accepting any number of players, however they turned up, um, but I want to emphasise again <clears throat> um, the importance of not using, you know, like three groups in different colour bibs to start with. You can do that once the players understand all the rules that are practised and they can then see how quickly transition can be applied. So you don't have to stop after every now 90 seconds or so and change bibs. Um, and that's the beauty of building transition in. Practice can go on because the rules are simple, they're easy to understand, uh, the players know what the objectives are, and they can play. Okay? Um, and that's what I like about building transition in. It's also another element of the game that you switch from attack to defence whenever you lose the ball. In, in What I've found to help players understand what they do defensively, you just say that at any one time... There will be two defenders in one area and one defender in the other. And the rest, you just play. And that simplifies things uh, enormously for the players. Uh, sometimes you'll find that players need, when, when there's that moment of transition where they get the ball, they, need, they have to maybe make a pass to the other end and get a 4v2 down there to start with. Or if they've got, close to a 4v2, they may stay in the area they've won the ball and the other players then have to go and kind of equalise the numbers. But this is good because it makes pe uh, players look away from the ball and they're thinking about what else apart from just, you know, passing and receiving the ball and keeping possession. They have to start thinking about where they're going to go. So I, that's why I particularly like that. Uh, the other thing I really uh, found beneficial was that when you allow one of the defending players to go into the, the other area when the ball is played between the other two defenders. It really highlights um, the players on the attacking team who do scan and those that don't because when players just stand in there with their, their, their back to the other defenders, um, they get dispossessed quite easily. Here's another example of a practice um, where it's easy to deal with odd numbers. And this is what I call a continuous practice where you transition from attack to defence. 
There's high repetition. Uh, there's scoring. It's a fun activity. Uh, it's realistic in terms of the game, but maybe not for all the players in it due to the rotation of positions. So what I mean by that is you could have um, your two centre-backs as two of the strikers at any one time because the players rotate. So they all get an opportunity to attack and defend. Uh, they all get an opportunity to score, uh, transition, make overloads. And uh, that's why players like it, because it's it's that final bit of the game. It's about scoring. And whether you're a, a striker, a midfield player or a, a back four player, you all like to have an opportunity to score a goal, even if it doesn't happen for a lot of players on a regular basis throughout the game. So... This is the sort of practice. Now, there's variations on the theme. So you've gone here from 2v1 transitions into a 3v2. Once the, the attack's over, the players then become defenders and so on and so on. Uh, to increase motivation, uh, things like whoever wins the game goes off and uh, starts having a shower and that while the others put all the gear away. That always adds a little bit of flavour. But it's another good example of a continuous practice, and how to deal with odd numbers. In this part, I just want to talk about creating a learning environment and the difficulties that a lot of people face these days with restricted space. Since 2005, when Australia qualified for the, the World Cup, um, I can remember back in those days clubs turning players away because they were full up. They couldn't accommodate any more junior players because they just didn't have the resources and facilities to do it. And that was 15 years ago. I know there's been an increase in facilities, but that increase hasn't kept up with the demand from the number of players playing the game. So, And also, since 2005, there's been a considerable increase in the cost of playing. Now, these two factors have had a, a significant impact on what people experience at training and also what people expect for uh, the, the amount of money that parents are, are paying for kids to play football. So one of the ideas that I've had is to make the best out of this situation, right, which often results in smaller squads. Uh, I know uh, clubs, many clubs have 14 players in a squad which means you've got 13 outfield players and one goalkeeper. And the downside of that is that you, you actually can't have a practice game. You can't play a small-sided game at training. And so in, in trying to meet different um, expectations of parents who want their kids to play every week, clubs have a smaller squad so that everyone gets on the field on a Saturday. But the net effect is, what impact does that have on learning and the environment at training? Because, as I've said just now, if you've only got one goalkeeper, it's impossible to have a small-sided game. You can have variations on a theme, I'm aware of that, but it's not like all teams are playing and trying to score goals. So that's got to have a detrimental effect on what's happening with players' learning and development, in my opinion. I come back to the starting point about why do you choose certain practices? Why do we have repetition? And how do we build the elements of the game into practice? It's about the motivation and realism that we get in training. So I think it's got a negative impact. Now, um, I would suggest 
that under these circumstances and with limited space, often teams are, or coaches are restricted to working in a half a field, sometimes less than that, a quarter of a field. If you can organise two, two groups of similar age, say under 14s, under 15s, if they've got a share of field, then uh, put those groups together so that they can share the players to give them the opportunities to play games. And this is um, this is a, a draft. I'm going to show you a picture in a second. But Group A might have 14, um, and they're going to borrow five players and the goalkeeper from Group B because the coach wants to have a 10v10 game. That leaves Group B with eight players if everybody turns up. Now, we know this in advance. This isn't something you just do at the drop of a hat at training. So you could plan what you want to do with eight players, and you can also plan what you want to be doing with the 20. And then after 35, 40 minutes, the two group, the coaches then say, right, I want all of my group together. So I've got my 14 and I'm going to borrow five of the other group plus a goalkeeper. Now that means the goalkeepers are playing in games almost nonstop. Okay, there are pros and cons of that, but they are getting game experience and so are the players. And then at the end of the session, back to the groups uh, for a little warm down. Coaches can talk to the players, have a review of what's going on at training and so on. So this is what it might look like on a pitch. So on this example, I've got a portable goal 20 yards over the halfway line. And whether you go full width or almost, the coach has an opportunity to play 10v10 with 20 players and work in the game. So the players know whenever they come training, they're going to be playing a, a large part of the session is going to involve playing games, which I would advocate. At the, on the left-hand side of the picture there, we've got an area uh, 70, 70 metres wide by at least 35, um, maybe a little bit longer, um, you know, going up and down the field, which is quite a large area. Now, I've just put a practice in there, uh, 4v2 plus 1v1, similar to uh, what you've, you've just seen in the building a practice for six to ten players. But that is a separate little practice. That's just an example. Um, as a coach with eight players, you could do whatever you want. Um, so that's an example. And here's another one. Same concept, two groups. Uh, but this time I'm going to have uh, less players. So one group would be working with 16 players, leaving the other group with 12. Um, and it might look something like this. So here... If you want to have uh, more of a game activity and you've got portable goals, uh, I know bonnets and things like that are easily um, transportable. So you could be working on half a field each with 12 and 16 players respectively. One has both goalkeepers and plays a game. As I showed in the small-sided game, we've got a midfield zone put in and you, you can vary the size of that, the depth of that midfield and make up a number of rules accordingly. I'm not going to go into that detail right now. Um, I'm just showing this as an example of what I would do if I was sharing a field uh, with another coach. And I've, I've actually done this. So I'm, I'm not saying it's something that I haven't done because I have. Um, and on the left-hand side there, because we've got 12 players, we may want a bit a bigger space. And that's a practice without goalkeepers um, and uh, very game-like motivation but essentially that practice is on trying to work with midfield players about their their marking positions if you like 
when there's no pressure on the ball. And um, again, that's a practice that I've used quite a lot and it's a good one. So that would be my suggestion so that the players know that whenever they come training, even though there's only you know 12 or 13 from our group, then um, we're, we're going to be doing a lot of practice in the game. And if you, have, if you had 22 or so turn up, there's nothing wrong with playing a game, um, a, a proper match for, say, 30 minutes. All right. Okay. Well, thanks, Ron. Thanks, everyone, for joining in tonight. Uh, that was absolutely fantastic. Always great to listen to you talk about football. Um, uh, never ceases to amaze me what a wonderful student of the game you are. And um, I, I need to put out a little disclaimer here that I don't generate any revenue from your website, but I am going to give it a plug here tonight because um, one of the things that I, I was fortunate enough and I didn't realise at the time is that my life as a coach began working with you at the AIS. Uh, and essentially from day one I had a mentor that we worked every day in the office. We got to work out six, seven days a week with the players out on the pitch. Um, and even when I left and I went back to Melbourne and I coached in the old NSL, you were on the end of the phone and I could run things by you. I think um, when I worked for Football Victoria for a while and, and saw technical directors, I assumed that they were coaching coaches. And I think what I learned is that in the MPL clubs anyway, they spend probably too much time talking to parents, maybe not enough time getting to work with coaches. So um, I looked at your website, I'm a member of your website, and I just think it's invaluable in terms of the resources it offers coaches. And for me, um, how much does it cost, Ron? Not a lot, 25 bucks. Uh, $25 a year, yeah. Which is, for, for the information and wisdom on there, I think it's invaluable. So I better stop up now or I'll get kicked off the Executive Committee of Football Coaches Australia. But it's a wonderful resource for coaches uh, and for players. But, 